All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host, Sam Moyne, and I, David Schleicher, talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. So, Sam, how is Italy? Oh, it's amazing. I, you know, I had trouble coming back, but, you know, there was this podcast and I had to board the plane to be part of it. You had to stop eating, I know, truffles on your pasta so we could talk about... uh, I literally had truffles on my pasta. Uh, they, I mean, of course, why wouldn't you? It's the best. It's a, it's a, but we, we're going to, um, we're going to be talking about a subject near and dear to my heart, uh, federalism and the nationalization of elections, a subject about which Sam, you're, I know you're also passionate. Absolutely. I mean, this is a page turner, even if you're not in the field and, uh, it's a kind of, you know, three alarm fire type book and everyone should be interested in what, so, what goes down now. So just so we're clear, we're going to, we're talking with the, um, uh, the the great young political scientist Jacob Grumbach about his new book uh, Laboratories Against Democracy. It's uh, it's really fun. Touched on a lot of subjects, everything from uh, uh, declining the effects of declining local media markets to democratic backsliding to uh, the Golden State Warriors and uh, the the role of uh, the role of uh, uh, kind of ju- uh, bouncy forwards like uh, uh, Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody and uh, James Wiseman. So. Get get pumped, people! This is a this is a real barn burner. Jake Grumbach is an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington. He received his PhD from UC Berkeley in 2018 and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics at Princeton. His research focuses broadly on the political economy of the United States, his interest in public policy, federalism, racial capitalism, campaign finance, and statistical methods. His book, which we're going to be talking about today, Laboratories Against Democracy, great title, um, uh, is, is based on his award-winning dissertation that investigates the causes and consequences of the nationalization of state politics since the 1970s. He's also, I want to add, the owner of maybe my my currently favorite Twitter feed. Uh, it's got commentary on politics, political sciences, and it's got these amazing song of the day, usually something like it's kind of 70s, 80s funk um, or some early hip hop. It's uh, great stuff. Um, also, regular commentary on the Golden State Warriors. So I want to start this by asking a very, very set of important questions about uh, that. How are you feeling about the Warriors' second unit? Do you think the punch is going to ruin the season? Like, how are you feeling about the Warriors right now? Tough. Oh, great. So what an incredible intro and great question. So, yeah, no, the plus minus stats on the game against the Kings uh, a couple of nights ago was, like, hilarious. The starters just incredible and the bench not so incredible. But I don't know, man. Uh, James Wiseman, the center, like, he's got to step up on defense a little bit, but improving, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. Draymond Jordan Poole, I guess no no comment on that. <laughs> I can't divulge my inside. You know, being so close with them myself, can't divulge the inside. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, you seem like you seem like someone who's going to regularly punch one of your colleagues at a meeting. So no, it's say so, so you can sympathize. Really, it's that. <laughs> Um, no, so I want to get started talking about the book. I um I I I, I adore this book. Um, uh, and sometimes when we do books on this, when we do particularly when we do books by non-lawyers, the lead gets buried a bit. Um, uh, but not here. The the thesis of this book is kind of admirably clear, which is you say that the nationalization of politics and particularly the nationalization of political party competition has led to three effects: a resurgence in state policymaking, polarized laboratories of democracy, and lab- what you call laboratory laboratories of dem- democratic backsliding. And I want to hit all three of those, um, kind of note that this has implications for federalism, which uh, we will also talk about. Um, But I want to start off by just asking you to describe what you're talking about. When you say that politics is nationalized, uh, 
What does that mean? Exactly. So, uh, you know, you know it when you see it, but uh, uh, political conflict at the mass and elite levels is overwhelmingly focused on national tug of wars over the direction of the country, national culture war issues, uh, uh, national partisanship and so forth. You can see this in mass politics. When you ask people, you know, what's driving your vote choice, what's driving your political attitudes, they talk about national issues, elites at all levels of government from, you know, local dog catcher up to president are focused on the national tug of war. You can see this when, you know, if you're running for state legislature in a different state, you need to know you know, have the right comment on what's going on in, you know, with trans rights in Disney World in Florida and so forth. And there's a number of causes of the nationalization of the parties and partisan competition that you guys know well in political history, racial realignment and the realignment of the U.S. South over the long term. But then uh, I really emphasize uh, the nationalization of political media over the past generation. So the decline of classified ad revenue for state and local journalism you used to have orders of magnitude more state and local journalists on the state legislative beat. Now you have um, cable news, internet news, and newspapers are focused on national issues and are often owned by conglomerates. Um, great research on you know the rise of Fox News from Greg Martin and others, and the rise of Sinclair Media, for example, and local TV stations. Um, and then finally. Uh, technology means that fundraising and uh, sort of activism are national. Social media, as well as uh, fundraising, is uh, considerably more national in character. And organizations, national organizations, are much more involved in state politics than before. So that's a long answer of sort of uh, oh. uh, three major causes of the nationalization. Of the yeah, party. that actually went to exactly where I wanted to go. So, I mean, I've written about this, and and I, there's a big, really big research project that shows that. Uh, um, uh, ticket splitting has fallen and that uh, that voting at all levels is driven by uh, kind of support for the president or op opposition to the president. But I, one thing that you're – the way you structure it is that it's kind of um, – to kind of take a terminology term from a previous era of political science, nationalization is kind of the unmoved mover of your project, which you say like nationalization happens and it has these downstream effects and nationalization – but to what extent do you think that the nationalization of political conflict is itself a, caused by some of the things you're talking about? So that that the uh, we nationalize in politics because state, you know, whatever you could things that are happening in state politics or things that are, you know. To what extent? Why is it that you treat nationalization as kind of outside the system, such that you can just study the cause, the effects of, rather than something that is caused by other things? Yeah, no, and I'm no big city lawyer, but you guys, you know, I have to this applied political economy quant work and there i'd say you know yeah the exogenous shock is the nationalization of politics in my you know uh fields lingo but uh you're exactly right the actual true like model involves many feedback processes and endogenous components that's absolutely true so and it that's actually a really important question for how to get out of this sort of mess uh so one way you know some People really do think you can put the nationalization cat back in the bag and sort of diffuse politics, um, reduce the uh, sort of uh, national conflict by re-emphasizing localism and state and local politics. Um, and if you think, you know, for example, the nationalization of media was caused by people focusing more on uh, national politics rather than driving attention towards national politics, that would follow. But I do think a lot of those structural changes did come first and that ordinary individuals, including us, you know, like it's not our it's not 
are doing when we now in survey research, you know a lot more about somebody's vote choice based on what they say about, you know, Lizzo's flute than, uh, you know, James Mad- playing James Madison's flute or Colin Kaepernick more than their opinion on the minimum wage or something like that or some sort of state and local policy issue. That, you know, seems quite technological um, that uh, uh, clearly there's a, uh, some feedback processes, but I think treating a semi-exogenous nationalization through, for example, the nationalization of uh, technology and, uh, you know, underneath the hood, what we'll talk about later is that uh, unlike the parties, institutions have remained decentralized in American politics. Yeah, I mean, for it's worth, that's what I think too. And I work. I think that the, the unmoved, that this is exogenous, is probably right. Um, um, and technological stories is right. I mean, I think that I think that you're you're. I was just kind of curious what you thought. Um, the um one of the the kind of straightforward implications you draw uh, before we get into the three effects you sp- like spend a lot of the book on is that state democracy just isn't working very well if politics is nationalized. And you kind of do a kind of a, a kind of do the political science thing of kind of, and you, but you focus a great deal on what we call, might call responsiveness, which is the degree to which uh, uh, voters' ex ante uh, preferences uh, result, uh, kind of, uh, are influenced or reflected in public policy. But you don't kind of talk about the other side of this, which is accountability. So, like, to what extent does, um, you know, a good or bad economy or whatever else um, influence voters? And I was kind of curious why. And I also was wondering if, in answering this, you could lay out your arguments about how. Like focusing on responsiveness in the kind of uh, Chris Warshaw sort of way, miss the elements of federalism that you're talking about. Great calls. Uh, so uh, first thing is so responsiveness. There's different ways to conceptualize it and estimate it that are actually really important distinctions. One is sort of cross-sectional at any snapshot in time. Do more conservative states have more conservative policy and more liberal states more liberal policy? And there, there's some like. Even in in my book, there's some evidence that actually might be getting better in some cases. And the new Cohen Warshaw book coming out soon, State House Democracy, is really nice on this, where they do uh, estimates of congruence. So that you know, do majorities live under policies they agree with, and that do in my reading, you know, that was the preliminary draft, but. Uh, you know, liberal states actually innovating these new liberal policies kind of made them more congruent, and to some extent potentially the South realigning to the Republican Party may have increased that sort of cross-sectional responsiveness or congruence. But then what I also find is if you ask who's driving those policy changes, is it changes in public opinion or not? I really only find uh, 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 that sort of change in public opinion is driving change in policy on like LGBT rights or really LGB rights and uh, marijuana, highly salient policies, but big transformations in the Midwest on economic policy in the states, big uh, abortion restrictions prior to Dobbs and certainly after Dobbs, even more unresponsive. Uh, uh, these are not being uh, led by sort of opinion shifts in that dynamic over time way. Um, but at the same time, so uh, then in addition, uh, David, you brought the really crucial point of accountability. So in voting behavior, we think, okay, I choose who to vote for based on their policies and partisanship, candidate characteristics, a forward-looking vote choice. But we also have the old, are you better off than you were four years ago, Reagan line, looking back retrospective voting. That's supposed to be really helpful for democracy. And one nice thing about that is it only relies on voters knowing what happened to their experience, their economic circumstances, and so forth. Doesn't rely on all this. You know, you don't need state and local journalism as much 
for retrospective voting, you know? So that's a potential hope, but I really rely on this guy, Steve Rogers, who has a book coming out too, um, outstanding work. And he has an APSR to this effect, but when uh, state legislators individually, he maps, he does a great job mapping attitudes and vote choice to state legislative districts, which is a hard GIS type of problem. And then he shows when you take as a state legislator an out of step vote, you're not really punished uh, retrospectively. And the uh, there's other work by folks like Sean Frieder on the decoupling of economic outcomes and vote choice. Trump really completed that where like you actually saw a total flat, you know, line when it came to like, uh, you know, things like gas prices and vote choice. Um, you know, the, the other part of this is politics becoming much more sociocultural, which kind of goes along with nationalization. But all of that is true. Less correspondence uh, uh, between sort of voters and outcomes. So it's a, a great book and I mean, alarming, but great. So thanks for it. Uh, this is going to be a weird interview because David knows everything about this topic and I know nothing except what I read from you. So, I mean, the first question about the nationalization of politics, which is is really, I mean, a, you know, an arresting claim that seems right, it is kind of comparative. Um, I know this isn't a comparative book, but there are lots of federal systems around the world and the same technological changes are going uh, on everywhere. I mean, there, you know, there may be not the same kind of Fox Newsification in Germany, but they have Twitter, et cetera. So um, is is this just something that is, you know, going to happen to federal systems under, let's call them modern conditions? And then a more ethical question, when you have these lagging institutions, w wouldn't the first best solution just be to abolish states um, or to just, you know, update institutions to kind of, you know, be more in sync with the national debate we're actually having? So don't sell yourself short. Those are great questions. Um, <laughs> and you seem to know what's up, Sam. Uh, but uh, so I would say comparatively, so this is really important for thinking about social science and like inference in general is I rely really heavily on overtime variation in the U.S. case, N of one. But I'm this you know, I'm Americanists are the last bastion of area studies, like when you just were an expert in one area. And it's like it is a bit of American exceptionalism there. And I rely heavily on uh, sort of uh, comparativists to understand this. But I would say uh, a really important distinction between the U.S. and other federal systems around the world, Canada, India, Mexico, Germany, as you mentioned, one is all those other countries have greater uh, relative redistribution across regions. Germany, much more redistribution from West to East than like the, we, you hear politicians all the time. Joe Biden just did this. Oh, New York is subsidizing Mississippi again, blah, blah, blah. And that's absolutely the case, but it's more robust in all of these other federal countries. Um, so that's crucial. But then in terms of democratic institutions, like election administration, essentially none of these countries, uh, uh, puts, essentially all the authority over election administration and districting, many of them also don't have single member districts, um, at this lower level. Um, and that's really distinct where the U.S. really has 50 and then at the county level, thousands of sort of different election administrations. And that leaves. Uh, no, I get that. But I thought we were talking about the nationalization of politics driven by technological change, which I just am wondering why we wouldn't expect to happen everywhere. 
Thanks for getting me back on that point. So really crucial. It is happening everywhere to different extents, um, okay. but that's absolutely part of the rise of, uh, you know, national and like supranational uh, politics in Europe and the rise of the far, far right. Um, the role of uh, cultural conflict and media in this is, I think, actually has similar dynamics and the turn, you know, again, away from the economic cleavage in uh, determining vote choice to one that's much more, you know, about cosmopolitanism. Yeah, I mean, Sam, by the way, it's like the terminology we use in this area is uh, comparative. It's we use the term second order elections frequently, so people, which is a term developed to describe British local elections, then particularly developed to describe e European Parliament elections, which are second order on national level. So it can even be higher levels. So footage worth but yeah, the, the, so fundraising is not the same in all of these countries where uh, to give the ability of like, you know, now, you know, whether it's uh, super elite groups and, you know, through citizen super PACs and the development of 501Cs and, uh, you know, the Coke Network and Americans for Prosperity and so forth. And also sort of activist groups that the professional managerial class, you know, watching MSNBC and like sending to, a, you know, a pro-choice or climate group in D.C. nationally based, like that dynamic does appear to be a bit stronger in the U.S., that nationalization of political organization and resources. Okay. And then on, on let's call it the remedial side, I mean, do we just accept nationalization wherever in this country or anywhere as a fait accompli and just have one political system without and just abandon federalism, which is my, I mean, my prior is that the states are dumb. Um, but maybe, maybe we, we, there's just like much more reason to think that now. So, so true. So like one, the silver lining of this wild era of American politics has been kind of elite and intellectual breakdowns of sort of appeals to tradition and authority around institutions. Like that's been really nice. Uh, the civic religion of American constitutionalism is so strong. You guys, that's like a legal scholarship point. Um, but it's absolutely true. And, you know, you teach intro U.S. politics. It's like comical. Like you go. So what's the point of the Senate? And people like the like just mythos. And like you, you say, well, you know, for your own goals, like it seems more effective to do this other institutional design. They'll be like, no, but like the founders look so they got the wigs. And it's like, you know, breaking down that consensus has been really important on. Try to teach Senate. constitutional law, at, yeah. you know. Nice. Anyway, no, I, 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 I totally take your point. Well, good. So uh, the, so like the Senate, presidentialism, even uh, uh, the Electoral College, uh, many of these institutions, the Supreme Court have like rightfully come under greater scrutiny in a more robust intellectual sense. Like they don't all have to be, you know, these are political battles that produce institutional designs. I don't know how they'll go and I don't have perfect norm. My normative beliefs are the perfect ones, but like, who knows what'll happen. Of course. Um, but, uh, but they do involve scrapping all four of those things, not just states. Okay. Then we're, we're, we're together. The, the, the non-silver lining though, is that federalism was further reified in this moment, uh, mostly yeah. due to the double security Madisonian argument of like, we have a would-be tyrant in national power. So it's great to have decentralization and narrowly in the moment of a would-be autocrat, taking national power, you don't want to centralize all authority right then. But my argument is sort of over long stretches of time, nationalized parties 
colliding with decentralized institutions makes it more likely that there will be these sort of political representational distortions that produce sort of you know, sure. autocracy yeah. uh, coming so, to place in the first place. I wanted to ask about that. I mean, I, this is kind of getting us out of order a little bit, but that's cool. Um, uh, one of the the kind of big claims of the book is that uh, um, uh, we, we're seeing a period of unique democratic backsliding, that state governments are becoming increasingly less democratic, um, and that the cause of this is the nationalization of politics. We have the nationalization of politics, and it's got downstream effects, and this is the, kind of the last one of them. But I was wondering about this because it's not clear to me that democratic backsliding requires nationalization. You could we we not that long ago told stories about how denationalization of politics led to democratic backsliding. So here would be the kind of Jim Crow is like a era of denationalization, yet it's obviously not democratic. Similarly, the if you look at the kind of writing about uh, election and election law in the '90s and early 2000s, late in '80s, '90s, it's all about uh, incumbent protection which is all about a method of denationalization of politics in which the, you know, people in power try to keep things out. And similarly, we tell stories about capture, uh, uh, local like business capture, all of which are stories about how you get less democracy through denationalization. So is there a necessary, like, what are we talking about here? Great way of putting this. So uh, crucially, I think, so it's absolutely true. So first, zooming out, the historical correlation in the U.S. is so, you know, nearly perfectly correlated where Supreme Court enables state legislatures to do increased sort of variation on democratic institutions, whether that's, you know, uh, late 19th century, you like Plessy v. Ferguson, and then the initiation of Jim Crow is an uh, example of that uh, mini version of that. Now, another thing to say is like, differences in democratic health between states right now that variance is so much smaller than jim crow and certainly so much smaller than the slavery period like i think those differences are quite meaningful and produce really different representational outcomes with respect to like how responsive abortion bans post dobbs are like these are really dramatic representational breakdowns from democratic backsliding but it's not anywhere near disenfranchising all black people in the south and like the new quant paper on louisiana like luke keel and ishmael white and some co-authors it's like there was like a couple dozen black voters in louisiana for like decades like this is not the same um uh with that said like uh gerrymandering hugely consequential voter suppression pendulum on like what the take on voter suppression should be but it's clearly meaningful uh it's not neither everything nor nothing. And then uh, now the new threat of electoral subversion that you guys know quite well, that's actually an area where this actually is slightly unique and related to the nationalization of the parties in that using subnational institutions to potentially uh, subvert a presidential election, the incentives for a state or county level sort of officials to do that, those incentives are in large part driven by being part of this like national team and rising in the ranks of this national coalition means you got to play ball like that, where you would think in a decentralized party system, like under Jim Crow, Jim Crow's racial conflict and conflict over democracy was really like, we do believe when you look at the histories of Southern politicians in power, it was like national government, get out. Like we are going to have segregated, we're not going to have public goods. We're going to have, we're going to segregate those public goods and we're not going to redistribute. And we're certainly not going to have a like, you know, poor white and black sharecropping coalition. Like those things are really key to local and regional politics. Conflict over uh, local and regional goods and resources is uh, and uh, is so clear. Whereas now, again, like 
when there was a few too many New York Times, like going to the exurban Ohio diner to talk to Trump voters, there's a few too many of those. But like some of them, you actually get a little when you ask, why are you doing it? And they're saying it's not because there's an influx of critical race theory in my neighborhood or like, like it's not this local concern. It's about the country that I know and recognize is slipping away. And that is actually distinct from previous sort of decentralized threats to American democracy, aside from the, the civil war. Which big, big exception there. But that's my all-time favorite footnote I've ever seen in a law review. So some, some, some law review editor earnestly made someone argue that secession is hard in under the American constitutional system. And a professor forced to write a footnote in the subject, put a footnote in, and it just said footnote, and it said the Civil War. It's, 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 it's the ballsiest footnote of all time. See also. See, see right? <laughs> All right. So, so, I mean, not, we're getting to like this brilliant insight that you have about how the nationalization of politics in our era is driving these hijinks at the state level. Um, and it's, it's really eye opening. But I want to ask, since you're, you're kind of, you know, not just framing this, but trying to measure things um, to talk a little bit about the democracy index that you develop in, in the last part of your book. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff on the list that you're using to generate these totals, I mean, are uncontroversial. But then a lot of it, I guess, has at best an indirect relation to anything we would call democracy, or it's about substantive democracy, it's, or it's about your policy, you know, beliefs and preferences. And so I'm just wondering... Um, why we should not work with a more, let's call it minimalist definition of democracy, like the really uncontroversial stuff, uh, rather than like load in all this stuff I'm unhappy about in most of the most of these states, um, in order to kind of give the um, the impression of even greater crisis or crisis with respect to things that are actually in controversy. So crucial. So this is the like, yeah, the gotten the most attention out of the book and uh, uh, gives a lot to discuss. So that sort of quantitative measurement of democratic performance is a big thing cross nationally, right? And polity varieties of democracy, you know, Hungary's backsliding, you know, let's measure Brazil and the Philippines and so forth. Uh, you know, US potentially slipping, that's a huge, you know, topic in comparative politics. And then I apply similar techniques to the states, but Sam, you make a Crucial point. So in the book, I use 61 of these indicators, mostly on electoral democracy, but also on sort of civil rights and liberties, liberal democracy as a component of democracy there, uh, you know, according to sort of normative democratic theory. Um, interestingly enough, those like more, quote, like controversial uh, uh, sort of liberal democracy measures, like, you know, does a state have like what I'd consider more authoritarian criminal justice policies? In the APSR forthcoming, um, where peer review in the, if you guys know quant research, peer review is a lot harsher in the paper world. Um, so I had to remove the, and just make an electoral democracy measure. Um, remarkably, get this. I wasn't reviewer too, uh, just in case. <laughs> oh, the reviewers were harsh but fair, harsh but fair. Okay. Um, if it comes out, then that's, that's what matters. Um, but uh, peer review is a good, it's like, there's a lot of problems with it, but it actually, like, I'm, this is the other thing, like now that there's more like attention from like punditry and stuff on my work, I'm so thankful to be in academia where there's all these incentives to like try to be right empirically. 
um, it's actually like really liberating. Yeah, we we don't have that in law, so it's fine. It's a whole other problem. I finally did a law review. I respect those two. Like, yeah, uh, they put in a lot of work, but uh, you're they, right. That is certainly true. It's certainly true. I'm not an opponent of the law review system, but it doesn't have that benefit you're talking about. It is pretty funny, um, but, but uh, they're also so long. Um, it's not enough numbers. Um, but so here uh, in the peer review, but the real irony and this keeps happening but like people think i'm loading up some left-wing stuff on this but then remarkably when you take out those ones that are more controversial it actually the republican effect on democratic backsliding is even stronger so for example i find when i separately study liberal democracy and sort of civil liberties it's totally bipartisan for example the tough on crime and authoritarian policing 70s through the present was totally bipartisan um, then same thing when you talk about like egalitarianism and some social democracy sort of concept that most unequal states economically are like California, New York, you know, that have billionaires and so forth. So remarkably, mm -hmm. it's strictly on things like the extent of partisan gerrymandering, the cost of voting, responsiveness to public opinion, like we've been talking about on those even electoral security issues like having post-election audits. Um, you know, prior to now, audits like seem to be going off the rails a bit um, this year. But uh, so I'm going to have to reconceptualize that. But it loads those actually point in a singular sort of partisan finding dimension. So it actually has very been very ironic and funny when people go like this guy's trying to set up this left wing right. measure. And then I take out the things they want me to take out. It becomes even more, <laughs> quote, left wing. Um, but again, Democracy is a really tough concept to measure. The last thing I do that I think I really think is important to shout out is I use these statistical simulations to try to say, let's do any sort of weighting or inclusion scheme possible, theoretically, randomly assign weights and inclusion of these individual variables, like whether a state has no fault absentee voting or automatic voter registration or whatever gerrymandering bias measure. No matter what you do, you cannot get rid of this effect. Like this is just, it's hard to present an partisan asymmetry finding with both siderism being so strong, but like, this is one thing I want people to download the data. It's publicly available, make your own measure. This is, unfortunately, it's not my, it's not what I want to say. It's like, it, does, it gives me no pleasure to say like this finding is like quite robust. So the finding here follows on, this is like the third of your three points, but it follows on pretty directly from the second. So the finding being that uh, Republican states have learned from one another uh, ways to uh, engage, make, make state-level democratic responsiveness a little less good across like a bunch of dimensions. And so that's the finding. Um, and I, but I was kind of more also interested in the broader finding about laboratories of democracy. And so the 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 method the argument you make is 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 we've we no longer have a kind of uh, a single laboratory but we have uh, two groups of laboratories democratic states copy democratic states and republican states copy republican states um, and this is bad because it'd be better if everyone's learning from everyone um, but so the there's a pretty I don't know decently well known literature on the on laboratories of democracy and it suggests that they're not microfounded. Like why would any politician invest in research and development in their state if all the benefits are going to be going outwhere? And so Susan Rhodes Ackerman, our colleague, made this point a long time ago. And she's like, like laboratories are not just like why is anyone inventing it? So what's the incentive? Sure, there's lots of incentives to copy, but there's not a lot of incentives to innovate. Um, and so one of the answers that the literature has developed is that. 
there are, we might develop institutions that develop proprietary rights over inventions that they can take advantage of it. So some people talk about private lawmaking organizations, like the private organizations that have built, make building codes, and there's questions, of, you know, whatever. But the, the um, other one that the literature points to is political parties, that a political party might invest in one state because it wants to export it to all of its other peers. So is the partisan laboratories of democracy bad? What baseline should we use? Should we use everyone copying everyone, everyone learning from everything, or should we use no one ever innovates in anything at the state level because it's only losing? It's uh, their risk averse, like, you know, so like, why is this bad or good? I mean, forget outside of the democratic backsliding area where you might think normatively it's bad, but like, is it kind of more broadly speaking, uh, partisan, uh, uh, a partisan system of laboratories and copying necessarily bad? Yeah, really nice take. So uh, the point here is that so theories of laboratories of democracy, everybody's going to learn from each other and sort of converge on best practices, reject failed policy experiments. Uh, what I find is, especially since the 1990s and 2000s, is that states uh, used to emulate geographic neighbors much more and uh, to some extent on the basis of similar demographic and economic conditions, which we might expect if there's sort of, you know, rational learning and uptake like uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin are pretty similar places. They should probably have pretty similar policies. They should, you know, or somebody's going through a budget crisis and like looking, you know, what's some you know, they should pass stuff other budget crisis states, you know, states are doing. Um, that's all really decline. Uh, um, and similarly, uh, I never found much evidence for it, but uh, there is some evidence that, uh, you know, things that are electorally successful. So if incumbents start doing better statistically in elections after a policy, right, that should be electorally successful. And maybe other states might look to that. Um uh, now, all of these things happen just, you know, within party. And, you know, that's interesting because, you know, the parties control very different geography. You know, blue states like Vermont are different from California and red states in the, now in the Midwest are very different from deep south states. So uh, it is a, a bit puzzling. Um, and then it does diminish the capacity for this learning. But if, like you say, if the baseline is no learning because of externalities in uh, your policy learning and production um, and spillovers, not just externalities of like learning the policy, but also potentially, you know, free riding in terms of like uh, the welfare state and a decentralized uh, uh, decentralized structure. So there's a great new like uh, game theory piece by Sandy Gordon and I think a co-author sort of formalizing some of these points. But if that's the baseline, you're right, like partisan diffusion is certainly better than none at all. Uh, I would say it also reflects the rise of like uh, partisan aligned sort of communities of expertise and uh, the polarization of those communities of expertise. But you're right, if the baseline is no learning, partisan learning, converging on two versions of, you know, ideologically and partisan derived best practices is better than- yeah. Nothing. Yeah. So it's funny. In law, there have always been these kind of formally neutral institutions that do this. So there's something called the American Law Institute, and there's the uh, Restatements Project that do that do this that provide the kind of connective tissue that we've now made partisan through things like ALEC. And I'm, you know, like I think about just basic like like you know you and me right. hard scientists. You know, like they're supposed to provide some sort of okay. You know, there's oh. debate about like is social science like 
normative to some extent and it is but like given some utilitarian framework and you can say like we want to optimize on these outcomes like then experts should be able to provide that but those communities have been you know heavily polarizing over the past generation yeah i mean and that's certainly true for like like law professors who are the like like a kind of particularly policy oriented right like a, a obviously normative necessarily normative in their work um and so but my question is like um this kind of hits a set of questions about so political science if you go back to the 1950s was really critical of the absence of nationalized or particularly of of ideologically coherent nat political parties this is the E. Schnatscheider and um, the the uh, and, and all those guys um, uh, and the it see one of the things that the kind of this line of literature runs into is and in me as much as you so I don't want to is like was like was that so good before and I asked you in the context of Jim Crow but like it's the um, or alternately like is this the price we're paying for the re for responsible party government that 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 like so. Is the ideological coherence of political parties a problem? Right. And I'd say so it's hard to say out of outside of institutional context. So it's true. Like it's really in a lot of ways, it's really good to have ideologically coherent parties for clear voter choices, accountability reasons. Absolutely. Also, like we've been saying before, so not only has, you know, the Supreme Court typically enabled state governments to engage in backsliding, it's then sort of democ democracy act advocates, you know, whether it's civil rights activists or any other, you know, uh, typically call on the national government to prevent democratic backsliding in the states or expand democracy. And the national government is consistently the inputs, the participation in national politics is consistently more representative than is local politics. So you guys know this with respect to like, you know, I know David's been talking about housing and zoning politics and, uh, you know, heavy localism of meetings that are uh, extremely dominated by older, wealthier, whiter homeowner types. Um, this is all, and also on terms of information, we voters, we know a lot more about what, uh, who to vote for, and we don't rely on national groups uh, that could exploit sort of our either our myopia or our lack of understanding of what's going on at the state and local level to, you know, influence towards a, I guess, out of step vote. Um, so all that being the case. So the problem though, is like, I think, so really crucial nationalization of politics let, was the civil rights movement nationalized politics in a lot of ways, really crucial. Like that's the, what I come out, you know, my grandfather was like, you know, the editor of the Chicago Defender and Big Deal Civil Rights Act. This is like part of my being at the same time when it, I, I'm trying to bring out when it collides with the decentralized institutions of American politics in this techno plus this technological moment. It results in all sorts of distortions. And I think what Sam coming back to Sam's point, like it really emphasizes the needs for institutional reform to match our moment of political attention and understanding being national and technology and sort of political resources being national. We really need to understand how to reform institutions. So I wanted to ask some questions about partisan learning too, because I just found that a, a kind of really interesting kind of part of the book. So I guess two questions. First, why was that not always obvious as, as an objection to the more promotional account of laboratories of democracy, because it seems pretty obvious. And, and you might even argue that when politics is more 
decentralized, it's going to be much more obvious that like they're doing some really weird things in Minnesota that aren't just, you know, a nifty experiment, but like part of some Minnesota partisan identity. And that will be more perceptible from outside. Um, whereas now, like, you know, within our partisan space, like we might not be able to see, like see, see things that are on our side as partisan in the first place. And yet they're going on everywhere. And then I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering about the compared to what question. So, you know, if, if we abolish the states in our utopia, you know, we'd still have big debates at the national level about what to do. And we'd have like big debates about who can learn more quickly, you know, say like there's a famous debate in my world about whether the legislature can self-correct and learn compared to the judiciary, um, you know, which could, you know, which might be tempted to correct the legislature's mistakes unless it lets the legislature learn. And, and in that debate, similarly, we would say, well, it depends on what, how learning's defined, and that's going to be a partisan question. So I guess w w maybe we should just abandon this whole learning idea because what we're really talking about is different views of the future and people wanting to push them through and claiming to learn, but actually inhabiting partisan identities. So I was I was curious about where you're going, but you ended I'm at pretty with you that like so I use for example in like a policy is economically successful if it's like correlated with like better employment and growth outcomes. And I say in like a long footnote, I'm like, you know, these aren't like objectively, you know, this isn't like the platonic form of the good. Like this is really, you know, this is based in what I consider as like some consensus in like, you know, economic performance. Um, but it's absolutely like power all the way down. And I think you're right. I think that's I think that's like so I'm critical of the like notion that policy learning was, you know, even if it did occur in the like, you know, ver the highly optimistic version of Brandeisian learning and so forth. Like even there, I don't think it's a amazing justification for any institutional design. I think that's right. But now that it's diminished and now there's like no real incentive to learn for a number of reasons in a nationally polarized context there's no incentive to learn if you're a state legislature from the other party because if you pass a policy from the other party and it performs well that shows an example of like oh the other party's idea was very good um so that's bad the second thing is these like polarized informational communities that provide the legislative subsidies the other thing we have to remember is like post-civil rights, like state legislatures are just not doing much important policy period. Like there's, and which is actually kind of good. Like, you know, there's not, there's convergence. So, you know, in my work with Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, like regional convergence happens through the seventies where the poorest deep South states are catching up uh, through, you know, essentially national industrial policy and so forth. Outcomes like mortality and so forth are converging across states like whereas the bottom is coming up right and state you know national government is passing important policy that standardizes policy across the states and that was actually a nice moment um but i think that's the i'm like with you that actually like you know this learning relied on like essentially a object that there is some like platonic form of a dimension of good and that's actually just where learning people do so here's another thing like i 
used to think in my political youth, like, oh, all these people are do they're voting for abortion bans because they're duped and like they really want wages and health care and like, but actually people trade all the time trade off on like I want to vote for the person who talks trash on the right people on TV and I'll trade off wages on that, like rationally and with full information. And we really actually have to understand they're like different political preference structures and respect that and also but also like be willing to say like you know we all have uh you know clear goals and we might think that's bad but that's uh certainly is the case i think like is that a would that be like a more schmidian view like yeah because it kind of where the 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 discussions tending is is kind of saying well partisan learning is kind of oxymoronic and that we're really talking about partisanship rather than learning because every you know partisan has his or her own lessons to teach. I think that's right. And the decoupling from economic growth and like vote choice in general, like helps to suggest that like there's something else going on that and that's highly consistent with this decline of like learning from best economic practices of your neighbor. Yeah, so I want to throw in uh, a quick thing. I know Sam's got another question because it's going to follow, but it's um, the, on the lack of convergence. This isn't just driven by um, uh, national level policies. It's driven by uh, work. The chain, it's driven by local policies, um, which may, you know, it's the, the this is Ganong and Shoag on how uh, local land use restrictions in rich state, in rich, mostly liberal states, uh, sl- slowed convergence by slowing uh, 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 human mobility. Um, so. Really nice point there. So that's the other, uh, you know, another optimistic take on federalism vote with your feet threat of exit reduces rent extraction by state governments. It, you know, produces, you know, better economic performance, um, fiscal federalism type of stuff, efficiency gains. Um, but it's really true. So the housing crisis, mostly in blue states, reduces mobility so people can't move to opportunity in that sort of way. Um, and you also can't move based on, you know, the vote with your feet sort of arguments of more recent how it's supposed to reduce polarization where if you don't like the social cultural policies of your state you move to one where you like it. you know gay kid can move to a more liberal state type of thing you know and that's actually just the political economy doesn't quite allow that in part because of the housing crisis but also we just understated the fact that like capital mobility in this technological moment lightning fast you can move political resources you can move money but people who need to move themselves voters you know workers in the in labor unions things like that heavily tied to geography and can't exploit the advantages of institutional decentralization so we've been talking about your your take on the theory of democratic laboratories you know which is is a a century old i wanted to also give you a chance to tell the listeners about your take on the theory of so-called progressive federalism, um, which you know has made the rounds in the last generation, and you know it, it I I remember it being you know very prominent once again directly after November 2016, uh, when the notion was that we we preserve federalism precisely because uh, it can. Prov- preserve sites of resistance. So tell me, you know, just in general about that theory and its limits in your view. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So most of the theories we've been talking about, I would consider sort of like often, you know, sort of center right in context of the benefits of decentralization, often like, you know, post-war political economy uh, and game theory and 
uh, you know, there's theories of like market preserving federalism and so forth. But then there's this theory of progressive federalism that an earlier version in the 90s and 2000s, I think, really emphasizes emphasize the importance of descriptive representation for racial minorities in uh, cities and states like, uh, you know, majority minority cities, majority minority states. Um, there's some value to that. You know, there's consistency studies show, you know, you know, black legislators bring back more, you know, do better for black constituents on the margin. Those are all actually declining in the age of polarization or now it's all driven by party. But, uh, you know, you could see those things and like black mayors really mattered in the post-war era in terms of uh, uh, building a black middle class and sort of the spoils of uh, of government in uh, machine cities and things like that through public sector work. That was really crucial for uh, the growth of the black middle class. Um, at the same time, uh, it's pretty clear that on average, and I think this is a comparative study. I'm starting with Bernard Fraga thinking about comparatively. So I would say parliamentary systems tend to have lower discrimin uh, descriptive representation, not as many like Dutch West African members of the Dutch parliament, but they have more equal outcomes across those key minority groups in society in terms of socioeconomic outcomes and policy outcomes. So in the U.S., there's this thing like I think we understated the fact that if you're in the minority or out of power, don't control whole chambers like descriptive representation is much less valuable than was emphasized in, I think, poli sci um, and behavioral literature. But then more broadly, uh, uh, you know, I think the representational gains of, you know, uh, Latino city councils in California and things like that, like it's just totally swamped by the representational distortions of decentralization. But then Sam, you mentioned the crucial change in progressive federalism from this sort of like, look at the growth of sanctuary cities, for example, was a key success story of progressive federalism, which I think, you know, quite important, but uh, on average, I think abolishing the states would get us a little farther on average, right? in sort right. of like expected value then but then there's this new re-emphasis in progressive federalism of the double security site of resistance like you know gavin newsom's going to stand up to this chump uh type of thing again extremely crucial in the narrow moment where that's happening but over long stretches of time allowing key swing nodes that are geographically more valuable because they're swing states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, allowing those to be sites of backsliding, affecting representation, electoral administration, districting from, again, dog catcher up to the electoral college. That actually over long stretches of time is going to be worse for these particular goals than uh, progressive federalism. Same thing, climate. Climate is the other big thing. Totally. Like, look at all the climate stuff. But again, like climate is a good example because of externalities. It's just like you can continue to just throw more and more extractive and emitting industry into the like uh, into the uh, race to the bottom places. Like it's right. just not counteracted by gains in coastal states. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, the climate example is interesting because you actually have a lot of the um, like states with the most. Uh, renewable energy production, but just because of the way nature works, being being red states like Texas is the number one wind producing state. It's not like it, it's driven by T bone pickings, not by you know like anyway. Um, but it uh, yeah, the T bone pickings ads like in the Super Bowl back in the day. Yes, it was it was they were dope. Yeah, I completely agree. It's um the um 
I like one of the things that the book resists in some ways is what some people call the uh, the section four problem in law review articles, where you define a problem, you analyze the problem, and then you come up with solutions. And the book really is like really doesn't do that. It like it just it. It doesn't do that. And and I mean, the thing you talk about, like abolish the states. I mean, this is kind of that's kind of fantastical. And I'm curious about a little bit about why. Um, so other books and work in this area, so Dan Hopkins or me, it's all like narrow bore type solutions. And two big ones are things like subsidize like direct subsidies to uh local media, um, whether it comes in the form of like cash grants or um greater tax subsidy, or maybe even just national figures, fund, uh, like rich guys fund or rich people funding ProPublica at the state level, that kind of stuff. Or alternately, it's encouragements for the development of state-specific political parties. So you see this in um, uh, Vancouver, in Canada, um, where you have a, a party system. So you don't have the lack of party system that we see in American city, most American cities, um, but you, so you have parties that organize, but they're not. And you see it in Quebec, where you have a completely different party system. So the question is like, why not something narrower? If you're going to diagnose these huge problems and then like, if, if I mean, if it's like Lowell state suck, it's like, um, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, that may be good for you and Sam. It's like the, um, you know, bearded acid. That was the acid. blurb on the book, dude. Yeah, How did it, you get the exact it, blurb? It, I wasn't it, asked it, for a blurb. I would have provided go. that exact one. Um, uh, um, uh, it's, uh, it's like, it's like, it's like good for us. But like, but like, why not do the narrower bore thing? I mean, so the other thing, by the way, other move to talk about is to talk about like changing like allocations of authority, which we do all the time between state and local governments. And so, let me ask about the first question, and then the second question, which is like, why not something narrower bore? So I do think, it, you know, it's clearly not prominent enough, but in that conclusion, so I do think this came at a moment that, you know, the long copy editing stage of books, but like it was done, but the sort of in Congress, democratic reforms to standardize issues of election administration and districting across states was like actually very plausible. Um, in rep ex post, it seems so, oh, like, cinema and mansion we're never going to go for this like abolishing the filibuster for this but like there was a lot of uncertainty in that moment and i do think like also before for example new york state court threw out the democratic new york uh gerrymander for example there was some republican buy-in to a national gerrymandering ban which again shows like the importance of like symmetry and norm erosion to like establish new rules to prevent norm erosion there but so I think national democracy policy that was on the agenda, you know, that's, you know, sort of updates the Voting Rights Act and then especially gerrymandering ban and then what's not in the policies, but became very prominent um, reforming the Electoral Count Act uh, style stuff. So I think that's uh, uh, crucial. And uh, even there's like sort of stop gaps, I think, to some extent, even having like just general independent state level uh, election certification is like a potential like gain even in centralization compared to like county level uh, certification too. Uh, but then uh, uh, you're right. Like I'm not, I do, I agree with like those narrow uh, important reforms, but um, I guess I'm a kind of dramatic guy maybe. But uh, the other big thing is increasing political power of groups that sort of held democracy together in ways we didn't recognize. So my, Another line of research with Paul Freimer is really on the importance of uh, labor unions for organizing the working class and preventing non-college, especially non-college educated men from 
pure culture war politics that destabilizes democracy at the mass level and provides new incentives for grifting among elites and so forth. Um, that's pretty crucial. So state level laws are very important there uh, in the Midwest. Uh, really important statistical findings on the effect of right to work laws on Republican vote shares and also on Democratic backsliding. I'm working on a uh, project on that now. So I think that would be a sort of capacity building longer term thing. And you, as you guys know from like my Twitter feed, like I, you know, I'm supported. I have supported presidential nominees who focus on economic the economic dimension of politics in their framing like very heavily and i'm like sort of known for being that kind of like bro so to speak of a particular internet coalition but uh i don't think that sort of like turn on a dime message like there's i don't think there's an authentic centralized messaging strategy that is like really moves more than like the margin so i think those sorts of policies the democratic party has left money on the table um in terms of not changing state level election laws and state based labor laws and certainly in Congress. But like Virginia was a unified blue government until Yunkin and that uh, left its like did very minor updates to uh, voter registration and then uh, re remained a right to work state, which just shows like there is some asymmetry we have to deal with in terms of like eroding norms and pushing the full uh, advantage. And uh, as you guys know, I love the legal scholarship on like constitutional hardball is anti-hardball if you've seen that line of work yeah. i think that is so David damn Rosen. crucial i steal that stuff yeah. all the time yeah well there you go well um terrific this has been so fun thank you so much for coming on the pod this was a real blast and uh go dubs thanks it's a great book thanks you guys no you guys are really sharp and like this is really really good stuff i'm really impressed with you guys oh, great well thanks so much